Special word of thanks to the students. Uh, glad you're here with us. Welcome. Good to have you here today. We're doing a little mini-series these days as we go through the Gospel of John. We're camping out a little bit in John chapter 15 where Jesus said, I am the true vine. That is one of seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's the last of the seven, actually. And in each of those, we hear an echo of God's words to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked God, tell me your name. And God said, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. And uh, so we hear Jesus echoing that in his I am statements in the Gospel of John, each time claiming to be and showing himself to be the great I am. So we pick up today in John chapter 15, looking at Jesus, the true vine. Two weeks ago, we talked about his role as the true vine. Uh, he is that healthy rootstock that we get grafted into and find our life in him. And then last week, we looked at the role of, of his father, the gardener, the one who grafts us in, the one who brings the things into our lives that we need, whether we want them or not. But we learned that we can trust him, that all of those things are for his glory and for our good. And today, we're going to consider our role as the branches. Our identity is bound up in the true vine, Jesus, who wants to produce fruit in our lives. So we're looking at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, we've got some guys who have Bibles. Just come on up, catch their eye. Uh, otherwise, just take it out on, on your, your device and turn to John chapter 15. If you do use one of the Bridge Bibles, it's found on page 752, 752. We're going to read uh, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean. By the way, the word used there is the same word for the pruning. You are already pruned, he says. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Any words stick out to you as I read those? Any words you find repeating throughout that passage? 
If you're thinking vine, well, that's good. There, it shows up twice. If you're thinking fruit, that's even better. It shows up four times. He's interested in producing fruit in us. Branch is there six times. There is one word that shows up 11 times in those verses. Did you hear it as we went through? It's the word remain. Remain. 11 times. Pretty heavy emphasis there. Other translations use the word abide. Abide, remain. Today we want to look at what that means. Uh, Today we want to raise and answer the question, what does it mean to remain in the true vine? Sometimes it's good to consult a commentary, and fortunately in this case there is one built into the passage. Uh, The best commentary on verses 1 through 8 is to be found in verses 9 through 16. It's Jesus' own commentary on his words in 1 through 8. As we try to figure out what he means in verse 4, when he says we need to remain in him, we're really well served to look at verses 9 through 11. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at verse 4 and then unpack it by looking at verses 9 through 11. We're going to find a few things. First is the start point is, is being in him. Being in him is our start point. If you look at verse 4, Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now drop down to the commentary in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Start point, being in him. We need to realize that who we really are and what we really have in Christ. A few sub points here. Uh, First, in Christ, you are the object of divine love. Think about that for a second. In Christ, you are the object of divine love. And here's the wonderful thing. That doesn't change. Let me ask you a couple questions. Question one, when did the father start loving the son? Answer, he always did. He always did. In uh, John chapter 17, just a couple pages over, uh, Jesus is praying to the father. It's what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he's praying for himself. He's praying for his followers, praying ultimately for you and me. And in verse 24, he ends that piece of it by saying, then, uh, let's see, 24, there we are. Uh, To see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Father loved the Son before the creation of the world. The Trinity has existed Uh, from eternity past in perfect community, perfect fellowship, loving one another, and the love of the Father has gone out to the Son from before the creation of the world. Now, second question is, when did God choose you in Christ? The answer is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And that says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before 
he made the world. He loved us and chose us. Now, that is all in Christ. As the Father loved the Son, so he loved us, even from before the creation of the world. Now, we tend to get kind of hung up on time because we're time-bound. We're caught in time ourselves. But keep in mind, God created time. He's the author of time. He created all things, including time, and he stands outside of it, kind of like an author who wrote a book. We experience reading that book page by page, but he wrote the whole thing and knows it from cover to cover. So the point comes in our life on page whatever of that book that God wrote that we choose to put our trust in Christ to be our Savior. And God who wrote the book says, yes, I chose that one before I created the world. It's a wonderful concept. And by the way, it, that doesn't leave us passive. We have an active part in that ourselves. When Paul says God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, we need to realize that by God's grace, chosen can apply to each of us. By God's grace, we can choose to be chosen. God's sovereignty and our responsibility are both affirmed in Scripture. God is in charge. He is in control. And we are responsible moral agents who do what we truly want to do. We're not just puppets on a string. How those things come together is beyond our human understanding, but the Bible affirms them both. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. There's an interesting little rhyme uh, that describes the chosenness of God's people in the Old Testament. I think it showed up originally as a piece of graffiti on a wall, and someone had written, how odd that God should choose the Jews. And then a few days later, someone wrote beneath it, it's not so odd that Jews chose God. So both of those things work together. A little rhyme that speaks the truth that by God's grace, we can choose to be chosen. And when we do, we find out that we have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. I saw an artist's conception once of the gate of heaven, and as people were approaching it above the gate, it said, all who will may enter. And then someone walked through and looked over his shoulder and saw on the other side of that arch, it said, chosen from before the creation of the world. Both truths are, are there in Scripture. Now, why do I mention that? I mention it because it shows how secure we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are safe and secure if you've been chosen from before the creation of the world to be in Christ, can anything change that? Nothing can. And that's how Paul could write in Romans uh, chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 38, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As branches grafted into the true vine, we are chosen from before the creation of the world. Now look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As timeless and unchanging as the Father's love for the Son is the Father's love through the Son for us. A good gardener provides a healthy root stock, a healthy plant to graft branches into to give them life. Last week, we looked at that grafting process a little bit. Um, uh, the, the piece that is grafted in is just a stick 10 or 12 inches long. It's dead on its own, but if that vine is sliced and, and, and that, that dead branch is put into it, it finds life in the vine. Jesus is that true vine. We are those branches grafted in. So God has provided his son so that we can have life in him. And if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you are the object of divine love. And what's more, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, Christ is in you. When a, a branch is grafted into a vine, that vine, that healthy rootstock, gives life to that branch that was dead on its own. The life of the vine comes into that grafted branch. So we find our life in Christ. Christianity is not just a matter of following a bunch of principles, although the principles Jesus taught were uh, the greatest ethical teachings the world's ever heard. Uh, Christianity is also not just a matter of what we believe intellectually, although you do need to have an understanding of the truth uh, in order to put your trust in Christ, but it's not complicated. Christianity is, is fundamentally a matter of rebirth, a matter of transformation, a matter of finding life. It's, it's a matter of trading in the life that didn't work for one that will, allowing Christ to live in you. So Paul could write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a transformation at the core of our being. We are transformed by the power of God. God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in us and Christ lives his life through us. You are the object of divine love in him. In him, Christ lives in you. And then one more sub-point is this. You are in Christ. For every reference in the New Testament to our having Christ in us, there are 10 references to our being in Christ. Take a run through the book of Ephesians sometime. And look at how many times you find the words in Christ there. It's, it's a rich study. That's our position. We are in Christ. Now, you may say, well, in practical terms, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a huge difference. If we are in Christ, how should we picture ourselves? 
Well, where's Christ right now? The Bible says he's seated in heavenly places at, at the right hand of God the Father. And if we are in him, where are we? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 answers that for us. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Now, we may be slugging it out from day to day in this time-bound existence that we live in, but God exists outside of time, and in the reality of eternity, we are there in heavenly places with him right now. If you belong to Christ, you are seated with him right now. Picture yourself there. Can anything harm you there? Anything lacking there? It's a great place to be. It's a privileged position. Drink that in. Rest in that assurance. That's our starting point. We uh, abide, we remain in Christ. Uh, we find our identity in him. The task then is to remain in that relationship, remain in him. Verse four again, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Drop down to the commentary in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. We remain in him through obedience. Chapter 14, just on that same page in verse 21, suggests that our obedience is a sign of our love for him. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Our love for him is shown in our keeping his commands, our obeying his word. But 1510 here goes beyond that. It's the way we remain in his love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. It's the way we remain. Not that we earn his love, but we keep ourselves in a position of relational closeness with him through obedience. Here we need to distinguish between relationship and fellowship. Neil Anderson has a lot to say about our identity in Christ. And something in one of his books spoke to me, and I'll just pass it along to you. I'll tell it in my own words, but I want, to know, want you to know where I got it. Here it is. When, when I was born, I had a father. His name was Wes Moberg. And not only do I bear his name, but I also have his blood flowing in my veins. He's my dad. We're related by blood, and nothing can change that. I could change my name, but I'd still be the son of Wes Moberg because his blood is flowing in my veins. Now, is there anything I could do to affect the harmony of that relationship? You bet. I did plenty to affect the harmony of that relationship, especially in my teen years. But through it all, my actual relationship with my dad was never in jeopardy. What was in jeopardy was the harmony of that relationship. 
And what do you suppose the key ingredient to that harmony was? Obedience. Think about your own home. It's obedience. The relationship is strained when obedience is lacking. But whether we're, we were in harmony or not, I was still his son. Nothing was going to change that. He was still my father. Now, in the spiritual realm, when we're born again, we become children of the heavenly father. We enjoy an eternal relationship with him through the blood of his son, Jesus. And nothing can change that. Jesus tells us that he knows his sheep and nothing can take them out of his hand. We're saved by the grace of God, not by our own doing. And we're sustained by that same grace as well. We're related by blood. That doesn't change. But can we mess up the harmony of that relationship? You bet. And we often do. Harmony in this relationship is based on the same thing that the harmony in my relationship with my father was based on, and that's obedience. When we're living in obedience, we experience harmony in the relationship. And when we're not, we are usually pretty miserable. So we need to rest in the assurance that we are God's children and maintain the harmony of that relationship through obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us something really interesting. It tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about that. The eternal Son of God learned obedience here on earth through what he suffered. Jesus knows the struggles we have in our own obedience because his obedience was tested through suffering. Suffering causes us to answer the question, how far am I really willing to go in my obedience? Jesus' suffering went beyond anything we will experience, and his obedience was complete. The harmony of his relationship with his father was never an issue. And we remain in a harmonious relationship with God the Father through obedience. But that leads to the third thing, and that is the result and the result is joy. Joy. Look again at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now drop down to the commentary, verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Verse 11 raises obedience to a whole new dimension. Obedience brings joy. And notice that it's not just partial joy, it's complete joy. Jesus delighted in doing his Father's will. It was deeply satisfying for him. It brought joy. It was painful at times, but it still brought joy. Twice I have been by my wife's side when she was experiencing great pain, but it was pain that led to joy in the birth of our two children. In a similar way, obedience gets hard at times, but if we stay at it, it brings joy. Jesus loved the Father so much he wanted to obey him. It wasn't burdensome for him. It's what he wanted to do. 
when I do something my wife asks me to do is not because uh, I feel like I have to or, or she's going to clobber me if I don't, but I do it because I delight in doing it out of my love for her. And the byproduct is joy, deep sense of satisfaction. One of my professors in seminary, a man named Don Carson, uh, wrote a commentary on John's gospel, and he said this, no creature is more miserable than a Christian who hedges in his or her obedience. He doesn't love sin enough to enjoy its pleasure. He doesn't love Christ enough to want a life that pleases him. He knows that his rebellion is wrong, but obedience seems distasteful. He's at home neither with his sinful ways nor with his obedient friends. He's stuck between two worlds. It's a miserable place to be, stuck between those two worlds. But obedience brings joy, not in a rush of adrenaline and not in a superficial feeling that you have to stir up every once in a while, but in a settled feeling of satisfaction that your relationship with God is in harmony. You've done the right thing and you know it. Joy comes when the dissonance is gone and the harmony is restored. So, how harmonious is your relationship with God right now? I think if we're honest, there's not a person in here who's not experiencing some degree of dissonance right now in that relationship. It may not be that the whole orchestra is playing out of tune, but the dissonance is there. Our relationship with God is strained because of our disobedience. And you won't find the joy again until you deal with the dissonance. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. People in Malachi's day couldn't figure out why their relationship with God was off kilter. Couldn't figure out why God wasn't happy with them. And the issue was their obedience. In Malachi uh, verse, or chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, um, the Lord says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Well, the answer is obedience. It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Simple matter of obedience and disobedience creates dissonance in their relationship with God. When we're not walking in obedience, it's harder to relate to God. We don't want to come to him in prayer. We don't want to face him. We want to turn our face away like Adam in the Garden of Eden after sin. Uh, he tried to hide. Uh, we're ashamed. We, we don't feel worthy to come before him. It throws our whole relationship off kilter. Peter picks up the very same theme in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life 
so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Disobedience will hinder our prayers. It will cause us not to want to come to God in the first place. It will will cause us to feel ashamed and unworthy. Two simple examples, both of them dealing with marriage, both of them showing how our, our disobedience affects the harmony of our relationship with God. The harmony of that relationship hinges on our obedience. When we're not living in obedience to him, there's dissonance in our lives, not harmony. And where there's dissonance, there's no joy. Only when we're living in obedience to God's word will our lives have the kind of harmony and joy that Jesus experienced in his relationship with the Father as he walked here on earth. Let me make a suggestion just by way of application. This is where a trusted friend can be a real help in our walk with the Lord. I'd encourage all of us to have a person in our life that we can trust and share with, someone we can confide in and lean on, someone we can find encouragement from as we share life on life. And if you don't have one in your life, someone you can trust like that, I'd suggest you think about who you connect well with, who might be able to fill that kind of role in your life. And take some beginning steps to form a relationship with that person that you can go deep with. Maybe just invite that person out to coffee. Just talk about life issues and see how it goes. If it goes well, try it again. And if that goes well, say, would you be interested in meeting on a kind of a regular basis? And we can just kind of encourage each other in our walk with the Lord. It's a great help for that walk. And if you have someone like that in your life already, I'd suggest sharing something with that person this week. Share an area in your life that you would like to bring into greater obedience to the word of God. And then pray with that person that God would give you the grace to do it. And then follow through by getting together again and talking about how it's going and encouraging each other to keep on. And if you do that, you will be a faithful branch of the true vine. And you'll be helping another branch to remain in the true vine. Remaining is a matter of obedience. And obedience leads to great joy. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your great love for us, evidenced in sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us while we were still sinners. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us to be in Christ from before the creation of the world and that somehow by your grace we have been able to step into that relationship ourselves as responsible moral agents that your sovereignty interfaces with our responsibility in such a wonderful way that we get to make real choices. And when we do, we find that we've been chosen. Thank you for that great love for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really desire that kind of harmonious relationship with you in Christ that 
causes us to examine our lives to make sure that we're dealing with the dissonance that's there and submitting more and more of ourselves to you in true obedience that we might experience the kind of joy that you intend for us to. So we pray that you'd make that happen by the power of your Holy Spirit as we walk with you and as we encourage each other in that relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.